In this episode on trauma-informed biographical timelines, Sarah talks about screwing up as a facilitator and what she has learned about being intentional before, during, and after a timeline. So it's really fascinating. When I first became a resilience worker through the Resilience Project, I was in the audience. I was a participant. And I had come from a world where we uh, centered someone's story through the concept of a path which was a brainstorming session of what are our highest hopes for someone in their future. Um, let's, let's, what are those? What are we passionate about? Where, where do our interests lie? And how do we work towards that over time? And so um, sitting as a participant in a trauma-informed biographical timeline, I saw something visually that was similar, a big blank piece of paper on the wall and someone hosting a conversation. Um, but the conversation here was very different. It oriented us to put someone's current experiences in context to their life experiences and how do we understand them um, not from what's wrong with them but what happened and how can we help mm -hmm. um, so my first experience was as a as an observer and, and in that moment my mind went to possibility even as i was hearing all the tough stuff all the trauma that someone's experienced every time i heard something about went fishing with uncle john at seven ah maybe that's an end right mm -hmm. um really love reading in school ah can we volunteer and read at a library, right? My, my brain was already towards um, how can we build these, these resilience factors. Yeah, so when you started facilitating them and not just a participant, did you screw up ever? Did you have moments where you wish you would have set the stage a little differently or prepared people differently or facilitated the room during it differently? Absolutely. You know, I um, my first time I ever did it was on accident because the facilitator was late. So I said, Sarah, you can go ahead and start. So I um, was in front of the room. It had already been the stages already had already been set, uh, and I found myself uh, kind of bumbling through, hearing a bunch of facts. And uh, now, as a seasoned facilitator, I know we're here to gather story, to gather anecdotes, to get to start to hear and listen to a, a, a person's life, that this is more of a listening session than it is a scribe session. So, Are um, facts more of a what's in the person's files kind of thing? Is that what you mean by facts? Yeah, which are super helpful, right? Um, a lot of times these files um, follow someone around and all the information we need to understand what has happened, right? So not what's wrong but what has happened to a person. It's all there. But we never get a chance to take it all out, let it breathe, look at it, and understand how these things affected the brain and body and how they might show up today. So the facts are helpful, empowering even at times, but if we listen to the facts without what's around them, without the story that's around them, it can become stale, it can become less relational, uh, and more about, can, there's a slippery slope into diagnosing. The gift of the timeline is we're not there to diagnose, and we're actually there to start to look at where diagnosing went wrong, yeah. where that um, set us on a wrong path, where medication and behavior management became the forefront because we were mislabeled. Are there times when you start to see that trauma has been misunderstood and it's showing up as a label or a diagnosis? 100% of timelines that I have been a part of or facilitated showcase the pitfalls of our diagnosing system, right? Of our, of our medical, the medical model. Typically, I'll invite the conversation to start, what do we know about the pregnancy? What do we know about this person's time in utero? 
and before I even gather information, before they're even born. So I've gathered the in utero information. I'm putting my markers down, I'm pulling up a chair to the circle, and I'm starting to engage us in a conversation of how this person's introduction into the world already set them up against a lot, right? You can have four or five adverse childhood experiences just in the womb. Mm -hmm. If biological mom experienced domestic violence, um, was a substance user, had a mental health history and wasn't getting the support they needed, um, experienced poverty or homelessness. All of these things can contribute to the developing brain, which is really a direct co contribution to an activated fear center, right? Which will manifest itself in challenging behaviors later on in life that immediately get diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So if someone, a young child is having a hard time sitting still in class, right? That'll be labeled as uh, ADHD, hyperactivity. What we're not asking is one, is that person hyperactive or are they hypervigilant? And two, what do we know about this person's history or home life that might be contributing to their inability to sit still? Yeah, so much of what you just mentioned is those are really private details about a person's life and how do you go about beforehand gathering that information in a sensitive way. Yeah, so I think that's that's the beauty of deepening our understanding of this process. That it's not just a fact-finding mission. We are uh, we have a unique opportunity to hear someone's story with it with a new lens. So with the timeline facilitation, ninety percent of the work is done before the actual facilitation process, which is about a three-hour process in person. So all that prep work that before is finding who is that safe person. You said ninety percent of the work is I, done beforehand. I would yeah. say. I'd say, there, and, and I'm bad at math, so there, but those percentages <laughs> might be off, right? But there's a big big chunk of the work that happens happens before we even get in the room. So that, that consists of finding a safe person, right? I might not be the person, if I'm facilitating, I might not be the person to do that pre-work. Because I might not know the family, but the person, right? So either the social worker or the teacher or even a family member might say, hey, I, w I want to start to understand my, my family member differently. Can someone help me, right? I would ask that person, who is your safe person who we can introduce this, this topic to, right? So there are ways to sit down and, and that, again, a relational manner over coffee or tea or um, in a safe space to say, so we know that you and your family are up against a lot right now and we'd like to look at your story through a different lens. We think the way we've been looking at it is uh, maybe problematic or maybe not serving you in a way that's, that's helpful. So really relating with that family who feels like they're at the end of their rope. You, so it sounds different than just inviting them over to your office, sitting in, you know, behind your desk and kind of interviewing them absolutely. about what happened because that might come across as shameful or blaming. Absolutely. Share with the person, the family, what it is and how we do the process before we even ask for stories and details. Some family members might say, please, here's everything. I need the help. Some might say, I don't know if I can be there. I, I've already lived through it. I don't want to show up to that space. Then the invitation would be, is there, are there stories you want me to, how can I bring your voice into the room? Are there stories, are there things that really stick out to you that you want me to bring into this room? So it's really honoring where that person is and um, asking them how they want to show up in this process. Right, so they're not required. This isn't a required thing. Do you think it should ever be something that services take on as a required act of intervention? 
So I appreciate the, the language of intervention because I think there's a, that's a broad, people can understand what that is, but that's even where we would shift. This isn't something to be done at someone, which sometimes an intervention can be categorized as. And I'll answer your, your question with a both and, right? Yeah, or a yes and, or maybe even a no and. <laughs> <laughs> the moment we systematize something and say everyone's gonna do this all the time, we start to lose fidelity to the person and we have more fidelity to a process. So I would always invite people to look at a, a whole picture and decide, is this the appropriate thing to, to engage someone family in? So there, I think it always should be a curiosity. So if the family says, nope, I don't want to do this and I don't want you guys to do this. Mm -hmm. Then I think their voice should be honored and, uh, and, and valued and trusted. And then doing a trauma-informed biographical timeline in its fullest capacity would be off the table. My and to that is if we do not address trauma, that does, by address, I don't mean I have to, you have to tell me what happened to you and I have to do something about it. By address, I mean, if we don't recognize trauma, which is the root of what's going on, all of our services will be ineffective. All of our quote-unquote interventions could be misinterpreted or misaligned or misdirected, which could lead to more trauma. And we're going to continue to see people in and out of, in and out of systems, really, in and out of, again, this hamster wheel. So you would say these are necessary if chosen, these are necessary to really set the stage moving forward. I would say that if someone else's, again, quote unquote behavior is confusing, troubling, or challenging, it's that that's the invitation to step back and start to get underneath what's going on. Right. And a framework to do that, that uh, is effective and person-centered is the trauma-informed biographical timeline. Mm. I have gone to foster care agencies and uh, developmental centers to help people transition from that isolated space into community life. And we facilitated a timeline to bridge the gap so that the caregivers in the, in the, in the new home can understand and have a higher level of empathy, patience, and creativity for the person coming into their care. Right, and that's a good example of somebody who might be quickly written off or given a, treated with a behavior plan, yes. then there's a lot of risk for restriction and things being placed on them yes. without any empathy. And that's maybe only going to land them back into the facility. Yes, it will probably land them back in. And what I hear time and time again is one, immense gratitude for where they're going and deep, deep sadness from where they came. Because these service providers, these direct support professionals who are in the room sharing information to help that person shift out are asking, why wasn't I told this? Why didn't I, why wasn't I given this insight? I would have shown up completely differently in my work, still overpaid, or sorry, underpaid and overworked. Right. My empathy level, people in tears say, if I only would have known, mm. my training was to stop and manage. And this conversation shifts, shifts our, our lens in which we can see people. It invites us into their journey and into their world versus um, reinforces that we're an other. Yeah. So that's what that's where, no, I wouldn't say blanket statement, everyone should do a timeline. And at that same time, if we're not considering 
how trauma shows up in the person's life, we're doing a disservice to them and the people who we're asking to support them. It's unfair. So it sounds like a lot of what you learned from the beginning is that, okay, I need to set the stage. I need to spend a lot of time on the front end of this before we even get into the room together. And then once you're in the room Mm -hmm. together, how do you get those stories out and anecdotes? And how do you help the person who might have never known anything about Mm -hmm. this trauma Build that empathy mm-hmm. as they listen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great question, and it's a it's a practice. So I'll I'll share my practice, and it that means it's I have I don't have it all figured out, and I'm still learning. Right, I'm still still evolving. One thing is is I like to get people in a semicircle. Right, so there's a big paper on the wall, and to be in a semicircle facing the wall is is we're all kind of oriented to this space. And I also like to sit amongst them before I before we start. So we're all kind of in a semicircle or a circle to start. Ideally, there might not be any tables in the room, right? So we can we can be there. It can be a little bit more relational. However, if we're using this time to do a deep dive and what stories have been following and how can we bust some myths, there is space for tables to have papers spread out. People can take notes, right? Um, there's also a protective aspect of those tables. I'm a big no table person. I want to buck the patriarchy and tables just reinforce that. However, this can be the time where we're talking about a lot of vulnerable things. To have a physical barrier in between us and these stories that we're holding can offer a felt, it can signal safety back to So you're us. just talking about furniture, right? I'm just talking about the space, which <laughs> most people would... Not maybe, even think about. No. Uh, yeah. We I don't, I don't know if I would have walked into the room and thought, this is so intentional, the, the tables here. Yeah. Yeah. But there's even that thought going into your mm-hmm. practice. And that, that groundedness comes from Peter Block's work. He wrote a book, Community, The Structure of Belonging. And he talks about space and place and how important that is. So I'm bringing that lens into this work. That is, that's part of that 90% of the before work. So literally the orientation of the room, sitting with people. I always like to open with something relational, something that connects us. Who are you? Why was it important for you to be here? What's something you're passionate about? That seems like an inaccessible question sometimes. And it really um, contradicts people's experience in a, in a service providing room or, or, or an institution. No one's used to being asked about their passion with something heavy like this. But why I'm doing that is to ground us in our humanity. If we can do that for one another, we have more access to do that for the person whose story we're going we're gonna to understand. Right, so there's some orienting that happens there, and then I'll explain what we're going to be doing. So what the process is, why we're doing a timeline, and how we got into the room, and what the process is going to look like. And then I orient people to the time that we're going to spend. If I have three hours with the group, I'll tell them right off the bat, I'll stop you with one hour left, no matter where we are in the story, so we can shift the conversation to how are we all going to walk out of here and shift our way of being. What's something we're going to, how are we going to be, and how are we going to do when we leave here? A, a big danger that we have with the timeline process is charting out trauma and resilience and then having to run out of the room because we're out of time. Oh, yeah. That could be, oh, that could feel really bad as as a participant to yeah. sort of leave with all of that and not have a resolution. Yes. It can, it's, a, it's almost an act of violence, right? So being thoughtful as a facilitator and how we spend our time is key. And I'm guilty of that. 
I'm guilty of having to power pack my markers and go, right? So I know that from my own felt experience, right? Go back to the conversation we've had about intellectualizing a concept and then dropping into our, into our body, right? I can talk about this, but the being of the facilitation process is where there's a lot of work to be right. done, right? So you have a responsibility yeah. as a facilitator. Leave a lot of things out of the room to show up in a way that is present for the participants. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways you do that is sort of through this ritual, it sounds like, of setting setting a space. Yes. And yes. through a... So, yes. So then, so then being transparent with, with everybody mm-hmm. in the room about exactly what is going to happen before you start doing it. Yes. So it's kind of that agenda. There's a lot of times where I feel like I've been in meetings or long... Uh, seminars or things like that where it's like I just want to sometimes I just want to go back to the agenda and be like Mm -hmm. where are we in this so Mm -hmm. so even that can kind of help maybe bring people along in a way that feels like it's not too overwhelming Mm -hmm. maybe well it's it's a trauma-informed way of of holding space Mm -hmm. right so a trauma uninformed way is don't give context don't lay the groundwork jump in right so trauma-informed ways knowing that Trauma, our experience, but trauma isn't just what happens, it's how we experience what happens, right? Too much, too fast, too soon. So if I replicate that in this space, I'm, I'm now good bring people back into reenacting a traumatic experience, right? So trauma takes us out of our, uh, the here and now, right? So if I want to help people stay grounded, knowing that we're going to be sharing stories that might bring back big emotions, I need to orient them to the here and now. And make a clear path on where we're going. Oh, yeah. So okay. we have a place to always root and ground back to. Right. And then you have the time frame. And so when you get started, there has to be a lot that's going on while you're watching people's emotions and you're, you know, you're responding. You're not just reading a script and going through the bullet points mm-hmm. either. Right. You have that stage, you have that space, mm-hmm. but then there's some spontaneity that's coming up. Absolutely. How do you, how do you manage that and how do you sense when you need to be spontaneous and respond. So the act of having access to our senses, right, that's where all that pre-work comes in as a facilitator. So being present to the moment also asks, asks us to be present to other people, right? If I'm dissociating because the stories are too heavy, that's my invitation to do more work on myself so I can show up for people in the room. I need to be mindful of facial expressions, Uh, mindful of body language, mindful of when it's time to have a teachable moment or when it's time to back off. So this this, this thought that slow is fast, right, that's slow and methodical and being ritualistic in the process, knowing that I'm going to be with this team for six months, that helps ground me to know that we can come back to some of these concepts. But really what helps me is to sense what comes up in my body when I see eyes that are either blank which might be a sign of checking out, mm-hmm. or eyes that are scrunched up and curious, right? right. Or sad. So I'm paying, I'm paying attention to the bodies in the room, not just as bodies, but as, as people who have um, signals. Uh, it seems like consent. that would take some humility just to be able to say, like, mm, you know what, I might need to stop as a facilitator. There might need, uh, it's not, I'm not the most important person in the room right now. Mm-hmm. That person needs my attention. It's more of like almost a dialogue at times. Absolutely. Okay. And that's where I try to coach facilitators. And there will be a, a fact, right? John experienced um, n- severe neglect but from his caregivers when he was four. I want to put that on the timeline. I want to know that at age four, he's, his body experiences, right? His conscious memories are around neglect. 
But the person telling me that has a lot of story around that. So while I write that on the paper, I then orient myself back to hold the story. Mm -hmm. And if I get caught in writing every little anecdote of the story on the paper, I'm, I've lost my presence. That's having more fidelity to the paper and the, the, pro, or the right. product versus the person. So I think there's, there's something you're saying there that um, as, as a facilitator, I need to watch what boils up me. Ooh, I gotta sell this really interesting thing. It's not about me. It's not about sharing that interesting fact. It's about grounding in that moment. Yeah, and it gets to my next question, which is just around you know how you help people move forward afterwards with momentum, mm. that, that you're working in this um, really intense process, and then at the end of it, you know, what do you do to mm. make sure that people are, one, taken care of when they leave so mm. that, that like, they do have that resolution and it doesn't feel like violence to, you, mm. to them like, like you had brought up before, but also how do you... How do you build momentum in them? And it seems like part of it is care for people in the room while it's going on gives them a sense of being part of a team. Mm. Really where this process, process was birthed out of uh, a lot of different traditions and practices. And really one, one centering purpose was we've got a lot of, we've got people who are served by multiple systems who are not talking to one another, right? So this might be the first time everybody who is supporting this person gets in the same room. So we're no longer alone. We've got a, a shared language, right? When we increase communication, it decreases aggression for ourselves, meaning for caregivers too. So we're walking out with this sense of belonging. So that, that's one. Two, I'm not perfect at this. And this is, this is really where a lot of learning still needs to happen. How do we round these sessions out that don't leave a big gaping, big gaping hole, right? So my practice is one, making sure we have a good solid hour for what are we gonna do about this? Here's what we're up against. How do we all walk out of here with something accessible to our abilities, right? Using plain language is key. A lot of people, unless you have clinical training, you think you can't join someone on their journey. Mm -hmm. So any human being can answer the questions of who is Johnny, right? Hurt and happiness, right? Who is Johnny? Who is he? The, uh, can we honor the hurt within his wholeness, right? So that's where we share strengths. We share challenges. We share real things that this person might be experiencing. Or if Johnny's in the room, he'll share about himself. Who am I? Anyone can answer, what do you need, right? If you're hurting and sad, what do you need? Do you need a hug? Do you need to be seen? Do you need a safe space to share your feelings? I don't have to be a clinical or a clinician to be able to do that. I can, I can meet someone in that need. What will it take to meet that need and who's gonna take the lead? Those are the four questions that we really center and orient around. So everyone in the room has access to look at that. They can see themselves reflected in Johnny's story. And now we're looking at how do we have power with Johnny versus power over him. Yeah, what do you do when a person who's been in this room and you've gone through this process, what do you do when the team sort of has a disintegration? Maybe one person quits their job. Maybe one person's, I don't know if you've seen a person be in the room and say, look, I can't do this mm -hmm. uh, or step away from, you know, being a supporter. Has, has that come up a lot for you where you've seen some of these efforts get lost by the way of mm. um, the word? Turnover? Turnover. <laughs> Yeah. So there's, there's two things I would say to that. One, when we unfold, if you just read the case file, you might say, mm-mm, not me, not today. But the way the process unfolds, I have never seen it not touch someone's empathy center. 
a new, they're reinvigorated on how they show up in this person's life. Mm -hmm. So that, I'm, I'm confident that this process helps fill us back up if we're feeling pretty low. Yeah. The other part of that is when someone shifts out of a role because of a job change or a health concern, going back to school, their, their life shifts. The invitation to a new person onto the team is my ask and my uh, recommendation is to do that very delicately. And it's to not send a printed copy of the timeline to the person, but to take a time to come back to the table and let's walk through this journey. Let's orient this person not to problems, but to the opposite, to where, what happened to this person that explains some things and what is the resilience that we can build on? And you're saying that because you went through the timeline, you have more of an ability to onboard somebody new to their resilience factors, to the resilience approach that you're taking. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And if I'm, I, I always caution people in just showing a timeline to someone. And the other side of that, if, I, if I've got a lot of turnover and I keep bringing people in, one, I would do another timeline. I've done that before where a whole team is turned over and we would just start from scratch a new timeline so they can have that felt experience of this conversation. Or two, I would orient them to resilience, which is above the line, and hidden resilience, which is below the line. Hidden resilience is uh, this person stole a lot and got in trouble went to ju juvenile detention. Stealing is the hidden resilience factor because they weren't getting their food needs met, so they figured out another way. Mm -hmm. How do we start to orient people to not problems and pathologizing, but possibility? What I found is that when I sit through, or people sit through a trauma-informed biographical timeline, they start to have ahas about their own story. They start to understand that people are hurting and they're not bad. So their level of empathy and patience and creativity for this focused person is translated into every other person in their life. People leave a, um, one profession and they head into another world with this, um, this, this backpack of knowledge and learning and empathy. So I've watched people go into new settings and they're not trauma informed and there now they have these little antennas that say, wait a minute, there's another way to look at this. Mm -hmm. Sally's not bad. She she maybe might be hurting. Can we look at this a new way? And now we've got that ripple effect. Yeah, that's right. Amazing. That and is... what I would also add is when someone when you see these big turnovers, what we what we really try to lean into, which is also part of the person's story, is who is their champion? Who is the person who's sticking in there? And how do we invite them into the conversation in a new way? And help them with that sense of loss and what that might must feel like to them to be the only person sticking in there. Mm -hmm. Can we honor that as their own resilience? Right. And how can we start to um, to build that build that net in a more sustainable way? There are those champions. Sometimes you just got to find them. Yeah, and thinking back to the person themselves who's been the one to stick in their own yeah. story and having to go through the turnover and the change and things like yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. That There's abandonment. There's loss. There's um, a burden almost of I'm the only one who cares. There's a lot of hurt and ache in that. So if we can honor that pain and help be a conduit to other people who are sharing sharing that or also who see possibility and who, who see hope, I think that can help buffer against that sense of loss. Yeah. Um, For you, what's the most common outcome that's the best outcome? People are having a tough time. They say, hey, can we look at this in a different way? They accept the invitation to get in a room. They 
all everyone walks out of the room with a roll, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna have this action step that is either connected to something to do with this person that's building resilience or growing resilience, or there's a way I'm gonna shift my way of being with them to help offer a felt sense of safety. So I've got a new do and a new be, and each month we come back together as a team and say what's going well, mm. and what is, what are, what's challenging us, and how can we orient ourselves back to what we know ground ourselves on what we heard about uh, from this timeline to continue to shift our ways of being and the things that we do to support this person. We're more likely to have a positive outcome when we center the discussion around our way of being, our meaning service providers. How can we be differently versus focusing on fixing and changing this person, yeah. right? That's where we see the mix of. And when that happens, I'll uh, meet caregivers in that space honor their, uh, what they're up against and the, the, the toughness of, of being a person sometimes and I'll orient them back to the timeline to ground us and remember, we've seen this before. We've seen this lethargy show up as severe abuse. We've, we've seen this quote unquote defiance, right? I'll use someone else's language, showing up when the only no they ever had was to kick off their perpetrator. Gosh, what might that feel like to have that experience early on? How is that showing up now? So orienting people back to that process can be helpful. And it's an ongoing conversation as you as the facilitator. It's well, and so that's that's the that's the thing with facilitation. One, it's an evolving conversation. The timeline is a working document. And as a facilitator, to know my commitment of what's of the follow-up is the other part of the work. So you've got all this pre-work, you've got during of hosting that session, and then you have the follow-up. So there are multiple um, teams that I support where it's very clear that I am going to be at every team meeting and I'm facilitating that process. Most um, in my role now, I'm coming in to help facilitate the process, but I've done the coaching of the before work with the team and they know their role for the follow-up. Mm -hmm. So there's always an anchor person to follow the story all the way through. Mm -hmm. If a group or a team does not consult with the person who understands trauma, there we see another gap there. I can't force anyone into this understanding, but I can accept invitation to, to be at the table to help this process move forward. So leaving with new ways of being and new things to do. Absolutely. That's Centering it. our own self-care as we uh, join people on their journey um, is, would be an ideal outcome as well.